KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is on rooting out racism in small towns and suburban America. Took something like this to realize how many people actually felt racism is wrong. How important is white participation? It's absolutely crucial. We have to have really hard, ongoing conversations. We talk allyship. Being allies for each other in reciprocity. What it means and how we can all step up. Then she's the first black woman to ever get a major party nomination for governor. And she's got boots on the ground in Pennsylvania. We know what's coming, so let's be ready to beat them at their own game. Stacey Abrams talks fair fight for voting rights. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Back to Flashpoint, I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is racial justice in suburban and small-town America. In the week since the death of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter protests have spread far beyond urban centers. Some say that's where they're needed most. Philadelphia is a majority-minority city, but Montgomery, Delaware, Chester, and Bucks counties have much smaller populations of black and brown people. So how do you root out racism in places that are nearly all white? With me to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Sarah Willie LeBreton. She's provost and dean of faculty at Swarthmore. She's an expert in sociology of inequality. We also have Lindsay Wetmore Arcader, a medical anthropologist who has been on the front lines protesting for Black Lives Matter. And finally, we have Kevin Eleven, co-leader of the Bucks County Anti-Racism Coalition. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Dr. Willie LeBrighton, I want to start with you. I want you to kind of explain the history a bit of the suburbs, specifically how places like the counties outside of Philadelphia has become a place where there are so few people of color. And how did that happen? Well, there have always been suburbs, right? Small towns right around major cities. Um, I think it's important for us to appreciate that there was also white flight in the late 60s and early 70s. And as more and more African-Americans moved to Philadelphia, as they did to many cities throughout the South and the North, whites moved out of those cities. This didn't just happen because people don't like to live together. The federal government provided mortgage help for white families in ways that it did not for African-American families. And so there was an incentive program for whites to begin buying houses and houses were more readily available in the suburbs. In a city like Philadelphia, moving out became a symbol of upward mobility. And over the last 50 years, we've seen the first ring suburbs like Upper Darby, for example, or Yaden, right, become more and more diverse. And that diversity has actually begun to expand beyond those first ring suburbs. And so we're seeing more 
people who are immigrants and who eventually begin to identify as people of color in those first ring and second ring suburbs. But in Montgomery County, in Delaware County, in Chester County, in Chester County in particular, have remained pretty homogenous and, and pretty white. So there's expanding diversity around the city, but there's still places that are pretty homogenous. Quick follow-up to you. So there's some areas where they're like 5% people of color. I mean, it's it's like very, it, does it make it easier for racism to exist in these kind of spaces? I think that's right. Certainly as people move into spaces that are not diverse and don't talk with their spouses, their children, their neighbors about those decisions, it provides a kind of amnesia as to why people moved to begin with, right? So I think lots of kids who grow up in predominantly white spaces, for example, think this is just the way life is. I've grown up here. You know, it's where my parents found a nice house and a great public school system without understanding that public school systems are funded by property taxes and that there are whole areas of the state, of the country, where there are not as high property taxes or where there are people who don't have lots of home ownership and the schools don't benefit from the wealth of um, high property taxes. So certainly wealth and racism are all connected, but if you're not on the receiving end of a particular kind of of oppressive situation, you're not bound to see and feel it. So it's not accidental that Jewish people see and appreciate anti-Semitism, that African-Americans and Latinx people see and appreciate racism, right? That women see and appreciate sexism. When you're on the receiving end of it, you see things that other people don't see. So it's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to actually seek out people who are different from us because they see and appreciate things that we don't. And I'm going to come back to you and we're going to pick back up on that. And Lindsay, I want to go to you because you live in the Ardmore area, um, mainline area, and you got involved with planning a demonstration. First of all, Talk a little bit about where you live and why you decided to pick up the mantle and become an organizer in this way. So we are newer to the area. We moved here from L.A. about five years ago, and we came from a very diverse community in L.A. I mean, most of L.A. is just diverse by nature and didn't quite realize how homogenous it was when we moved here. Um, and so had to be intentional when we first moved here about seeking out diversity, just like Dr. Willie Breton was saying. We, I had to seek it out for my children, which was a weird space to be in. Um, we are Jewish, and so it was uh, great for us to move to an area that we did not realize was so saturated with other Jewish families, because that was unlike what we had experienced in L.A. So there was that trade-off, um, but, but we did have to seek diversity because it's just really not here. And so when everything started to happen and, and get heated late spring, early summer, um, and there were more protests and then subsequently the rioting. And we were in the middle of a pandemic, so it was just um, a pot getting ready to boil over anyway. I wanted my kids who had kind of been aware, and they're young, they're, they're 12, at the time they were 11, 10, and 7. Uh, they, had, they were aware of the riots that were happening and the reasons why the riots had happened as a result of protesting, as a result of the police brutality. But I wanted them to have some skin in the game, as it were, for them to be a part of a vocal group of people speaking this down, 
but also to uh, almost give them a peaceful way to do it in answer and response to what they had been seeing in the days previous with the riots, which were separated from the protests to some extent. I had to kind of explain to them why those two things were not directly correlated, yet they were correlated. And so I wanted to give the, all the children and all the families in our area the space to come out and demonstrate and show solidarity, which is why the group was called, you know, Solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And I didn't want to have any ownership over Black Lives Matter because we don't. But I just wanted whoever came out that day in Ardmore, and it was a pretty diverse group, to just be able to make a statement to not only our own community that seems to be very white, but any communities that are driving up and down Lancaster Avenue past that township building adjacent to South Ardmore and, and Delaware County that would be coming through that space to see we're here, we stand with you, we stand for you, we stand against whatever it is you think we stand for, just stereotypically speaking, and to give younger people an opportunity to see that happen and be a part of it. And I got a quick follow up for you because you wanted, you thought, okay, we're going to do this. It's probably not going to be that big. We're just going to do what we do. And then it blew up. It, it, you had hundreds of people there. I did. I had gone out early and put X marks on the, on the sidewalk about six feet apart, maybe, you know, 20, 50 feet in either direction of the township thinking, you know, everybody will stand on their spot. This is like the, everybody's first outing during the pandemic. And it was across the street and it was down the sides of the street on the other side. And it was so great. And it was diverse, which I didn't expect either. We had Muslim families there with hijab and, you know, Asian families, people I didn't honestly know lived here in this community. How did that make you feel, though, as a Jewish American woman, white skin, the whole nine, and you set this up and then it drew so many people? Temporarily uplifted, but knowing that this didn't matter if it didn't do anything else. If it just died there that day and the conversation didn't continue and we didn't continue to show solidarity, we didn't continue to make steps towards bridging gaps in communities, that it was for nothing. We haven't seen a lot of gatherings like that since then in this community. And I, I think that that's yeah. unfortunate. And Kevin, you live in Bucks County and came upon an incident that caused you to gather a group together. Talk about what happened in New Hope. When all this went down with Floyd in the late spring, I was asked to join and then later to admin this group uh, on Facebook. And you know, it started out for a couple of months. It was kind of slow. We were just trying to educate people, um, sharing articles and, and, and the like. About a week ago, someone saw something and I won't repeat what, what this sign said, but it was in, in a, a local favorite establishment and there it was right on the wall, blatantly racist. They shared it on social media. It got a lot of attention locally and people were appalled. It's blatantly obvious that what they were talking about was demeaning to people of color, to people who don't speak English as a first language, you know, and, um, we called it out and we said, hey, you know, so many people were, you know, this is wrong and what should we do about this? So my coalition said, well, should we, ha should we hold a protest? And the, the answer was a resounding yes. So what, what I've found here, you know, in New Hope is that it took something like this to realize how many people actually felt racism is wrong here and that they were willing to speak out about it. But conversely, we, we also saw pushback. We saw people saying there was nothing wrong with the sign, that, that it was a, not a big deal. It, there's definitely a need for, um, yeah. for people to come forward here. Do you identify as African-American? I do. Obviously, New Hope is not, you know, majority African-American. And you, so you had to build allyship. 
How sure. important was the, the non-Black folk support to what you were trying to do? In New Hope, we have historically been a town that has a reputation around diversity and around inclusion. So I was not surprised to see that there were a lot more people than there might have been in other locations willing to come forward. I mean, New Hope, 94.6% white and 1.5% and black if you, if you Google the, the stats. But what, what was surprising to me after moving here, being told how, how you know, inclusive it should be, were the amount of people pushing back. That was interesting to see. And these are some of these people are people I knew, people I went to the gym with, people I, you know, passed on my way to work. So it was, it was interesting, to say the least. Dr. Willie Lebrad, now I wanted to bring you back in here and talk about this. I mean, it is tough being the only or being one of a few in any place, whether it be an institution or a place where you live. How important is this building of allyship uh, across racial lines when we're talking about rooting out racism in places where literally the minorities are seriously the minority. It's absolutely crucial. And I think one of the things that Lindsay's story and Kevin's stories both show is that people are hungry for a sense of community mm-hmm. and they're hungry actually to make solidarity with other people. This allyship and some people have said, we need to really think about what allyship means. We don't want to get lost in that word. But what we really want to do is, is recognize that we each may be in vulnerable positions at one time or another in our lives because of the groups to which we belong. If we remember that and explore those stories and that mutual humanity and that mutual vulnerability with each other, when push comes to shove, and people are really hurt either by laws or institutions or just um, cultural ways of being in our society, then we can remember that each of us is vulnerable and we can reach out to each other and say, you know what? I understand. I empathize with what you're going through. I may not have gone through it myself, but it is completely unfair to be treated in a particular way because of the group that you belong to to be treated badly for the group that you belong to, to to have assumptions made about you. So allyship is really crucial. It's just another way of saying, building community with people who aren't exactly like you. And I I have to say, and Lindsay, I want to bring you back in here. How do you view allyship, being an ally to communities? And then uh, it's one thing to be an ally quietly, but what you did was to be a public ally. That's a different level. And a lot of people will quietly be like, girl, I got you, you know, and it's not necessarily with race. It could be a lot of different topics. I'm serious. Um, You could be like, I got your back. What they said was messed up. Right. But to stand beside somebody is a different level. I think talk about what it means to you and, and, and how it felt to be to go public in such a way. Yeah. Definitely not my first rodeo for just protests and and rallying in general. But I will say, I think there's a difference between allyship and supporters. And I feel like ally is an active word, but it's also a label or a word that gets to be applied by the community it affects to those that they consider allies. And I think I've learned that from the LGBTQ community that I don't get to say I'm an ally. You get to say I'm an ally when you feel like I've been an ally. I can be a supporter or I can be somebody who wants to do the right thing for that community, but I don't get to give myself that label until it's given to me by that community. So I really, I cringe when people 
use that word or when they apply it to me even necessarily because just me doing one or two things here or there doesn't necessarily make me like deserving of that label. I had a conversation with your producer where there's a little bit of an ick factor when they call me because I thought, what's my place in this conversation? This is not my conversation. And I feel very like awkward about being included in this because I want to make sure that I defer completely to the community this affects and I want to do what I can, whether that's aggressively and being in people's face out in public, or if that's organizing behind the scenes, I need to do what it is the community needs me to do and not what I think the community needs me to do. Because a lot of people are just like you. You know, they're, they're a white person, they wanna do something, but they don't know how to do or how to stand or how to be in solidarity. This is what the lesson is. People are literally starving for something and you represent a lot of those people who don't know what to do. And so that's why you're, I think you're a critical part of the conversation. It's a scary thing to go public for a lot of people. Yeah. Dr. Willie LeBreton has spoke on this a minute ago, and there's a level of reciprocity that I feel like communities can have for each other. And a, a concrete example is about a year and a half ago when the Squirrel Hill shooting happened in that synagogue, there was an African-American church in Overbrook that they physically came to our synagogue, to our prayer services, to be there with us in that space and pray with us for the for the tragedy that we had, you know, experienced in our Jewish community. And it was the most powerful part of that prayer service for me was seeing the African-American church's presence in our synagogue space for that moment. And I had conversations at that point saying, why aren't we there for them? When have we been there for them? When have we gone to their church? When things like this are happening in their community. And this feels very one-sided right now, as beautiful as it is. And what we could do as a Jewish community in that moment during this upheaval in the spring and in the, in the early summer when everything was just heated to the 10th degree is we couldn't attend in person, but we joined church services with that church online and we did Zoom services with them and our rabbi came and joined those services and we were just there in that space and it was beautiful to share and commune like that with each other. But yeah. being, being allies for each other in reciprocity is just going to build community to be bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm going to be there for you when you need me and you're going to be there for me. And we're just going to keep doing this until all of a sudden we're all together and we're just one big group because we have just meshed up so much. Touching right. on what Lindsay is saying right now, the one thing that we want the most from our allies as communities of color and marginalized, marginalized people is for them to listen. That's step one. And that's, you know, by what she's saying, it's very clear that she's listening. She's not going to go declare herself an hour. She's like, no, wait, I'm going to wait and listen and, and hear that call in before I do that. And when we start to listen to each other, it becomes not so much about us and what we want to do, even if we're hungry, right? It becomes more about what does the community need? And I want to follow up to you, Kevin, because you mentioned one of the shocking things were the people who were in support of the joke that was clearly racist. There's people who may not see it, you know, may not see a thing and say, oh, that's, they're overreacting. What is your advice to those folks? But they don't consider themselves to be the R word, the racist word. You, you know, it's funny. A lot of people don't consider themselves that. And what I've found is that you have to be, one, be patient with those people because they are not going to get your point right away. If you, you know, stand out and protest, yeah. sometimes you'll reinforce whatever behavior you're looking to change. What I've tried to do, and this is, this is you know, again, playing the long game is I try to be an example of, hey, you know, uh, for example, um, I'll give you a real world uh, scenario where in a workout group that I was in, somebody who was, he was affiliated with, you know, white power and white supremacy, he, oh, not openly, of course, but I know what signs to look for. 
for people like this. After working out with this guy for two and a half years, he came around because he saw that I, for example, didn't fit the stereotypes that he had been fed. So I think just being present and being yeah. visible is so important. And that's a beautiful story. And I want to, we're about to wrap up, but I want to ask you this question, uh, Dr. Willie LeBreton. You know, how important is when we're talking about rooting out racism in small towns, in the suburbs, that minorities are the serious minority, how important is white participation? It's crucial, Sherry. It's absolutely crucial. White people talking to each other about racism, really models for each other the patience and the long game that Kevin was talking about. There's no substitute for white people having these conversations with each other and in as kind a way as possible. And this is not about acquiescing to the situation we have. It is assuming that this is a long game, that we have to have really deep, really hard ongoing conversations with each other about what we experience, about our histories, about our perspectives in order to get to the place where we are listening and respecting each other. There's no shortcut for it. So whoever can participate is welcome at the table. And because it's Flashpoint, we do need to wrap up, but is this a movement or is it a moment? A movement meaning that it's a real shift toward racial equality and all parts of America, or is this just a moment that is fleeting? I think it's a movement, but a movement doesn't mean that it's over quickly. A movement doesn't mean that it's solved when the heyday of the movement is over. A movement is a step. We're all part of something that's an arc and it's bigger than ourselves. So I would definitely say it's a movement, but I think it's just part of the process. And Lindsay, what are are your thoughts on this? I think it's a movement with a lot of big moments. And it's been that way for 70 years, 80 years, longer than that even. Uh, And I think the upcoming election is going to let us know whether this movement and the moments need to get bigger and louder or whether there's going to be some actual conversation and dialogue. Here, here. Final word, Kevin. I do think it's a movement. And and I, I am optimistically saying that. But like the doctor had said, it's a movement that's been generations in coming and it will be generations more for us to really get where we need to be, I think. I hope I'm wrong on that. I would love to see true equality in my lifetime. However, I don't think it's anything that anyone should stop fighting for. Thank you so much to Dr. Sarah Willie LeBreton, to Lindsay wetmore Arcader, and Kevin Eleven for coming on Flashpoint talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, she's on the front lines fighting voter suppression, including here in Pennsylvania. Make certain that anyone who wants to vote has access to the right to vote. The first black woman to ever secure a major party nomination for governor and how she's pushing for greater ballot access. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, Why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. 
is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and the newsmaker of the week is voting rights. In recent days, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court extended the deadline for mail-in ballots and will now allow voters to use drop boxes to turn those ballots in. But voter suppression is real. Stacey Abrams, the first black woman to become a major party candidate for governor, has made it her mission to stop it with her nonprofit, Fair Fight, and she's here. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. There's a lot going on in the voting world. You are on the front lines fighting for voter access. Could you talk a little bit about your work with Fair Fight? Fair Fight was launched in 2019, first in response to the 2018 election here in Georgia. But as we did our work, we realized that this was an issue that really deserved national attention. And so we used all of 2019 and, or most of 2019 and all of 2020 to build voter protection teams across battleground states, including Pennsylvania. You've got a great governor and their really good intentions of doing the right thing, but there's been a lot of voter suppression that's been built into the system. And so a big part of our efforts prior to the Democratic Convention, our focus was building those, those protection teams. Our focus now is on election administration, making certain that the rules as they stand are followed that we've got volunteers across the country who are able to provide good information and support and to do the work of ensuring that either through litigation or through advocacy, every American, especially every Pennsylvania, has the right to vote. There are a half dozen pieces of litigation currently pending uh, in Pennsylvania over access to voting. We had long lines, uh, especially in black and brown neighborhoods. I witnessed it personally. Um, there's a lot of, uh, this is happening all over the country because what we saw in Georgia, and I was watching your race in 2018, the lines were ridiculous. How is it that this continues to happen in so many places? I think a lot of people don't really understand how this voter suppression thing works and how it impacts some communities a lot more than others. We have to remember that voter suppression has been around since the Republic's founding. It began with eliminating almost everyone except for white men who own land. Those were the only people who could originally vote. And so with each century, with each generation, we find ourselves fighting voter suppression. The challenge was we had this respite during the time of the Voting Rights Act from 65 to 2013, where most actions of voter suppression were at least tamped down, if not eliminated. But with the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, we saw a resurgence that spread across the country. It wasn't simply the states that participated in Jim Crow. It wasn't the states that had a tradition of voter suppression. It was anyone who thought they were losing power. And unfortunately, in 2020, that's largely the Republican Party. And so what we have seen is a very concerted effort led by the President of the United States to limit access to the right to vote, even for people who are legally eligible to do so. So we've heard these terrible rumors that are completely untrue about voter fraud. It is nominal when it exists, but it almost does not happen. It's a myth of unfortunately gargantuan proportions that people start to believe because they hear it. But voter suppression has been real and it targets black and brown voters. It targets young voters. It targets poor voters. And if you live at the intersection of those issues, you are more likely to face impediments to casting your ballots. And we know Pennsylvania was one of the states after the Voting Rights Act fell, but even though it wasn't completely covered by the VRA, that took up the mantle of trying to stop people from voting. One perfect example is vote by mail. We know that vote by mail is the safest, most accessible way to vote. 
Governor Tom Wolf worked to make certain that VBM vote by mail is available to voters throughout the state of Pennsylvania. And yet we know for voters of color, they're the least likely to take advantage of it because voter suppression has convinced them that it's not worth the effort. And we want to make certain that if you have the right to vote, that you use that right. Yeah. And so what will your volunteers, your folks from Fair Fight be doing in Pennsylvania? So I want to talk about this in two ways. There's the work that Fair Fight's going to be doing, and there's the work the Biden campaign's going to be doing. Yeah. And I want to keep them separate. Okay, <laughs> Fair good. Fair Fight is a nonpartisan organization. And so our effort is to make certain that anyone who wants to vote has access to the right to vote. We know, unfortunately, that the Republican National Committee, as well as a number of affiliated organizations like True the Vote, intend to intimidate voters. They've bragged about the fact that they tend to build, they intend to build a 50,000 person army of poll intimidators, people who will be out there challenging your right to vote. And it happened in 1981, just north of you guys in New Jersey, or just south in New Jersey. And the issue is we want to make certain that no matter where you are, you know your right to vote should not be taken away. The Biden campaign has created IWillVote.org. And I will vote is a great way to find out exactly what the, your rights are, where your polling place is, what your status is. But more than anything, we want people to know to make a plan to vote. We've got to vote early because we know that there are those who do not want our voices to be heard, especially in our communities of color, especially the black community, the Latino community, the Asian American community. There are, there are forces that do not want you to be heard. And so we know the best way to defeat voter suppression is to get out there early before they can get us. So we need one, people to make a plan. Go to I Will Vote, make sure you know all of the ways you can vote. You can vote early by mail, vote early by mail. But assume that something might happen and have a follow-up plan, have a backup plan. So be able to go and vote early in person and then have a backup plan for that. If you've got to vote on election day, even if that's not your intent, make sure you know where your polling place is. We don't want to get caught flat-footed. We don't want to get surprised. We know what's coming, so let's be ready to beat them at their own game by making a plan to vote early. And Pennsylvania can be among the first voters to cast their ballots and start moving this country in the right direction. Um, and so your advice to voters, what they should be paying attention to is just do whatever they can to vote yeah. early. Yeah. So here, here's why I say that voter suppression has always been among us. It's been yeah. here since the beginning. But we've managed to beat it. And so we have to be, but you can only beat it when you know what you're up against. So I talk about voter suppression, not because I want people to be afraid. I want them to be angry. We should be angry that anyone would try to take our right of citizenship to cast our ballots and pick our leaders. When you're fearful, you tend to curl into a ball and hide. But when you're angry, you fight back. We need to fight back against anyone who says our voices don't matter. Because if it didn't matter, they wouldn't be spending millions of dollars to shut us up. And so my, plan, my advice is don't panic. No matter what you hear between now and election day, do not panic. Make your plan, make your backup plan, make your backup to your backup plan. And then number two, tell all your friends and family, tell your cousins, tell your neighbors, tell the man who owes you money, tell the, the girl who broke up with you, tell everybody to make their plan too. Because we win when we overwhelm the polls with our voices and our presence. But we're no longer in a time where it's one day to vote. This is an election season. So we need to take advantage of the whole season and overwhelm the polls with our presence. Yeah. And I just wanted you to speak to black and brown voters specifically, because in Pennsylvania, we didn't have a great turnout of black and brown voters in 2016. 
And, um, you know, Democrats lost Pennsylvania, but just, I think, a forty to 70,000 votes somewhere in there. And we had over 100,000 people don't didn't show up in Philadelphia. So for folks who don't think their vote counts, what do you say to them? So I, I think that it requires that we be honest. Voting is hard. Unfortunately, there are those who've worked to make it so hard we don't want to do it. And voting is not instantaneous. It's not a miracle pill. Things don't get better the day you vote. But I think about it as treating diseases. We've got to treat the disease, not only the pandemic of COVID, but COVID recovery is going to be like taking a treatment for this terrible disease. We've got to treat the disease of economic inequality, the disease of racial unrest and racial injustice. And any disease you fight, you got to keep at it. You can't take one pill and be done with it. If you think about it like chemotherapy, you got to go back again and again. And sometimes the treatment feels worse than the disease. That's sometimes what voting feels like. But the reason we know it works is that when we have done it consistently, we have gotten progress. We have seen things change. And we know that black voters, that Latino voters, that Asian voters, but particularly in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, black voters can be the difference. And we need people who not only show up at the polls, we need people who show up in the streets to protest, at the polls to protest, and then show up after people get elected to hold them accountable. I stand with Joe Biden because I know he has a plan to build our country back better. And if we want better, if we think that what we've got is not enough, then the way we make a choice in the United States as a democracy is by voting. So anybody who tells you it's gonna solve every problem is not telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. The truth is it's gonna take work, but if we take ourselves out of the conversation, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. And we need to be at the table in this election. Wonderful, and my last question for you, All In, new film coming out. It'll be released on Amazon on the 18th. This is a big deal. People should pay attention. It's all about the right to vote. I'm the great, great, great granddaughter of slaves, the great, great granddaughter of sharecroppers, the great granddaughter of farmers and domestic workers, the granddaughter of cooks, and I'm the daughter of parents who worked really hard and still struggle. And yet I became the first black woman in American history to win the nomination for major party to be governor. I believe in the right to vote. I believe in our democracy, not because it has been perfect, but because we have worked at making it so. I don't like the phrase standing on the shoulders. I am the legacy that my family has fought for, and I have to do my part to get us even further. All in is the story of America, of particular communities of color who have been all in to fight for democracy because we know that it is the choice that we can make to make things better. And I want all of us to be all in because if we do this right in 2020, better is coming and we need it now. Enough said. Thank you so much, Stacey Abrams, for being on Flashpoint. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sherry. It's been my pleasure. Next up, they're preparing the city for the 250th anniversary of our nation. We want to think about this as a movement. Philadelphia 250, how they're starting a community conversation. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KWW, we are all about community. And a local nonprofit is preparing the city for the 250th anniversary of American independence. It's all slated to happen in 2026. Here to talk about Philadelphia 250 is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Executive Director Danielle DeLeo Kim. Welcome to Flashpoint. Hi, Cherry. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first of all, this 
Philadelphia 250, explain what it is. So Philadelphia 250 is a nonprofit that is helping to plan Philadelphia's recognition of the 250th anniversary of American independence, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And that happens in 2026. We know 250 years, that's great. But why are we trying to make it such a big deal? Philadelphia has a really unique and special responsibility to deliver on all of the promises that are in the founding documents, particularly that Declaration of Independence, which promised equality and freedom for all. Now, of course, it did not mean all when it was written because it was a very different time, incredibly challenging and inappropriate situations going on back then. But we stand to help put Philadelphia back as a leader of revolutionary change. So when the Declaration of Independence was written, it was a groundbreaking act of defiance against a series of injustices. And our democracy encourages us to continue to push for the change that we need to see happen. So as the birthplace of this document, we can continue to ride on that legacy of revolutionary change-making and breakthrough thinking. And you're starting early. You kind of want to get people ready for this and get their minds ready. And, and you're doing some things to help with that. Right. We want to think about this as a movement. And a movement requires, you know, a gathering of momentum and a process in which you are telling people to come aboard and you're giving them opportunities to think about what this big monumental milestone could mean for them and could mean for the city of Philadelphia and certainly for the country. So we are trying to be very intentional. We're trying to be as inclusive and as by the people as we can be. And to do that requires some thoughtful planning and a lot of conversations with partners who also uh, see this as an opportunity for their own organization's missions and for their own legacies that they might want to leave behind in terms of, of making Philadelphia and the work that they're doing stronger. It's also important for Philadelphia because we as a city have always played a very important role in hosting past major anniversaries. There are significant legacies that have been left across the Philadelphia landscape as a result of those anniversaries, such as Memorial Hall, which that was the birthplace of the first art museum, which then became the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And in 1926, a, a major legacy that was left over was actually the Benjamin Franklin Bridge. Wow, that's why it's such a big deal. So how are you getting people ready? The way we want to get people excited and engaged and thinking about the 250th now is through conversations. One of the things that we think that folks can be doing is starting to think about like, what does the 250th potentially mean for me, for our, my neighborhood, and for the city. And the way that we've decided to do that is through a series of conversations. We have a video conversation series called In the Pursuit. It's a series of conversations between now and the end of the year with thought leaders and change makers that are doing really important on the ground work today across a whole host of sectors and topics. What we wanted to do was to have those leaders talk to us about what they're doing today and then think about that with the lens of what is the future? What are we working towards? And in 2026, where will we be and how can we be contributing issues that we're working on help make the city stronger going forward? How can people participate and get geared up because 2026 will be here before you know it. Well, I would say the first thing I'd love for people to do is to listen in to some of these conversations by going to philadelphia250.org 
us. We release the video series through our newsletter. You can also follow us on social media under the Philadelphia 250 handles. Start by listening to these conversations and then thinking about what types of conversations you can have with your neighbors, you can have with your coworkers, people that you work with, and start telling folks about 2026. That's the most necessary thing right now is to really spread awareness that Philadelphia 250 as an organization that wants to engage as many people as possible in an inclusive way is to really do this through word of mouth and through the partners that we've been working on to spread the word about the 250th. As we get closer, please stay tuned for programming that we will be launching across the city. We are committed to doing programming that's citywide and is in the neighborhoods and allows for um, everyone to be invited. Yeah. In other words, this is just the beginning. Wonderful. So check them out, philadelphia250.us. Thanks so much, Danielle, for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Greg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. I'm walking through the flames. As the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said, fight for things you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Rest in power and thank you for your service. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.